The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are going through 1 Corinthians, um, Corinth being a city 2,000 years ago, similar to a lot of American cities and actually cities around the world, highly secular and humanistic and a lot of different false uh, ideas, worldly ideas, even worldly religions uh, that make up those cosmopolitan cities and that was true of Corinth. That's true of San Francisco and San Jose and Cupertino, where I live. And so Paul went into this very secular city where mostly non-Jewish people, Gentiles, lived. And he started talking to people and evangelizing and sharing the gospel. And he started getting a few responses positively. And then little uh, here and there, people were becoming Christians. And so he started a local church. And the church began to grow. And he shepherded that church and he was there for a year and a half at this church plant there in Corinth. And then he took off, got him, had him called into different ministries where he was planting other churches. So after starting the church at Corinth, pastoring it for a year and a half, he left, went to Ephesus and other cities to do church work there. And then while he'd been away from two to three years, he had heard word back from the church at Corinth from different people, uh, individuals in the church, whether it was Chloe, uh, apparently influential Christian woman in the Corinthian church, got word to Paul that things were not going well. Uh, there was trouble. There was division. Um, and that's chapter 1. And then at the very end of the book, there are some believers there who also w- were able to get word to Paul that things are not going well. Paul wrote a letter to address the problems immediately. One of the problems was uh, sexual immorality going on in the church, or wrong views about sexual morality among the professing Christians in Corinth at the church there. Uh, They misunderstood what Paul said. That was Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that we know of. We don't have that letter anymore. That letter has been lost to us. And then Paul had to follow up with this letter, 1 Corinthians, which was at least his second letter to them. And throughout this letter, he's actually kind of correcting their wrong understanding of what he said in his first letter. They were applying it the wrong way. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 5. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5 today where Paul just finished four chapters addressing probably their biggest problem in the church, and that was division in the church. Christians in the local church squabbling and not getting along. That happens today. That happens at GBF. Dare I say, yea, verily, that happens in every church. It does. Because people don't change. People are the same. Uh, Christians have sin living in them. Every one of us does. And we are naturally self-protective and self-centered, even as Christians. And from that, uh, we get into conflict with other believers. And so, there was a, and this just uh, snowballed and blew up in the church. That There was major division in the church at Corinth. And so Paul spent four chapters trying to deal with this issue of division in the church and these little factions and bottom line and he diagnosed it properly and said you know at the heart of the issue here is you are proud and arrogant you are overconfident you are inflated you have an inflated view of yourself christian and you have the wrong view of christ you need to elevate christ above yourself and give him the glory for all that he has done and everything good that you have came from him and everything good you have you didn't deserve anyway and every good thing you have you didn't earn it it was the grace of God and we are so undeserving and so he's trying to deflate their big-headed 
self-centered, arrogant attitude. To bring some humility into their life and their thinking and their worldview. And when someone has humility in their thinking and a proper view of self that we are undeserving sinners forgiven by the grace of God, that deflates and lets all the hot air out of your head and out of my head and then we can properly see how glorious God is and how glorious Jesus Christ is and His Gospel. And when we are humbled in that way, then we, ha we can have harmony with our brothers and sisters because we're now all on an even plane. God and His glory is up here and we are all down here. Whether we're apostles, males, females, our social status, how much we make, doesn't matter. We are all uh, sinners saved by grace. So that's Paul's big thing there in the first four chapters. And then he gets to the second biggest issue in the church, and there was wrong views of sexual intimacy or in, and an allowance of sexual immorality that a lot of these Corinthians carried over from their previous unsaved life because sexual immorality was rampant and practically it was a religion in pockets of the city of Corinth. So long-term bad habits have been developed regarding sexual identity and sexual practice, not from a biblical worldview, and it was carried over into the church. And so that's the theme that began in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul, in the first eight verses, rebukes them and acknowledges and, let, and reminds them, sexual immorality has been reported to me firsthand. It has actually been reported. There's immorality, porneia, going on in your church, uh, and it is public, and everybody knows about it. It's the big elephant in the room that you guys apparently aren't dealing with it, and uh, sexual immorality of a very embarrassing and a scandalous kind that even unbelievers don't tolerate in their midst. And it was incest, where a man in the church, a member of the Corinthian congregation, was having his father's wife, which would be his stepmother. Having, present tense. In other words, he was having an ongoing uh, inappropriate sexual relationship with his stepmother, which was a violation of God's definition of marriage. It was a violation of the laws laid down clearly in Deuteronomy and Leviticus in the Old Testament. Uh, that particular sin demanded and required the death penalty uh, if it was established by the testimony of two or three witnesses with uh, stoning to death. Uh, it was considered an abomination. Uh, the Jews knew this. Many of the Gentiles in that Corinthian city, they knew it was unnatural or not what a god or creator wanted or allowed. And so they even knew it was a horrible, scandalous, heinous sin. And yet it is being tolerated in the church at Corinth. And Paul is just aghast. He can't believe it. And, and then he said early on in chapter 5, you guys are so arrogant, you think you know everything, and here you've got this unbelievable gross sin going on in your church that you're not even dealing with. In other words, he, he's basically pointing out the huge, massive not log in their eye, but like the telephone pole in their eye. Because many of these Corinthians were criticizing Paul behind his back about how anemic he was as a speaker, about how unknowledgeable he was, that he wasn't trained in Greek rhetoric, and he really doesn't know what he's talking about, and so they're actually talking about their pastor and apostle behind his back because they think they are all that, and Paul's saying, how, how arrogant. How hypocritical of you. So that's the beginning of chapter 5. Trying to point out the sin. And Paul says, uh, this is a public sin, by the way. It is a gross sin. It is a dangerous sin because of the nature of the sin. If this goes unabated or unchecked, it will poison many in the church. It could actually destroy and kill the church. Also, it gives a horrible 
reflection of what Christ-likeness is supposed to be to the onlooking world. The church is supposed to be holy in its living. God, that's what God said. That's basic. That's from the Old Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. I have saved you. I have redeemed you. I have made you a new people. You are to live like me. And God is, first and foremost, He is holy. His people should reflect the likeness of God. So God's people are required to live a holy life, individually and also corporately. So that carries over even from the Old Testament. And so every New Testament church is expected to live a life individually and corporately of holiness, abstaining from wickedness. And being honest about it and pointing it out and dealing, dealing with it and disciplining it and being a pure reflection of the glorious, sinless Jesus Christ whom we are supposed to represent to an onlooking world. Show me Jesus. Show me Jesus, says the onlooking world. And the only thing they have to look at is really Christians. Christians and how we explain the Bible and how we live the Bible. And we've got to give an accurate picture of Christ so we can't be divided among ourselves, arguing with each other as Christians. That distorts the picture of Christ. We can't be walking in immorality and tolerating sexual immorality because that distorts the holiness and the picture of Christ. And then finally Paul addresses this and says this needs to be squelched and immediately removed because it robs God of His honor and His glory. It is His church. You are simply stewards of it, required to do biblical maintenance in the church you're neglecting one of your basic duties and that is maintaining holiness in the church through church discipline not just through paul but every christian is responsible and because you're neglecting that responsibility you aren't being good stewards of the church which belongs to christ and to god we're not being good stewards so that's kind of uh, paul's triple theme as he's going through the reasons why and then the last thing he says is by the way you have the authority to do discipline in the church and watch over it and safeguard it and be a steward because God has invested every believer with the authority of Jesus Christ Himself. Paul says that two times in this passage. Christian, you are to judge the sin that is going on in the church. Well, who are we to judge? I will tell you who you are. You have the authority of Jesus Christ Himself. Verse 4 and following. In the name of Jesus, that's our authority. It's delegated authority. It's not our own authority. It's not inherent authority. It's authority given from God according to Scripture. And then Paul transitions to the end of chapter 5 after talking about uh, the immoral Christian member in that church who says this guy needs to be removed instantly, and they haven't done it. He says it all throughout from uh, chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to the end of the chapter. Get rid of this guy, get rid of this guy, get rid of this guy. Confront him. If he doesn't repent, get him out of there. Remove him from your fellowship. That's church discipline. Uh, then he transitions now to verse 9 through 13. So let's go ahead and look at that. We began this last week. And I titled it, Judging Believers and Unbelievers. Judging Unbelievers and Believers. Christians are to judge. Actually, I'll say this. Christians should judge and Christians should not judge. And we want to make a distinction of where it's appropriate and where it's not. And that's kind of the theme that Paul's laying down here in verses 9 through 13. He says, Christian, there are things you just need to judge. Like a judge literally in a courtroom. You need to take in the evidence, assess the situation, lean on the wisdom of God, render a verdict. There are times where you need to do that as a church with certain people. And then Paul says there are times where you don't, you don't do that. You don't judge like that. You leave that judgment to God. And so... Uh, let's go ahead and follow along in 1 Corinthians 9-13 through 13, and I'll read where Paul transitions a little bit now after talking about the immoral member in the church. He says, I wrote you in my letter. I, I wrote you earlier. Maybe it was a year earlier. And in that earlier letter, 
I said, don't associate with immoral people. That was his command. Don't associate, don't fellowship with, don't have deep intimacy with immoral people. So that's what they heard in the letter, and they, were, they messed it up and got confused. And apparently, a lot of the Corinthians were thinking, oh, okay, Paul doesn't want us associating or even talking to unbelievers, because all unbelievers, they're immoral. Therefore, I am only going to talk to Christians. And I'm only going to associate with Christians. And I'm going to not go to the unbelieving dentist anymore. I'm going to find a Christian dentist. And I'm going to go to a Christian mechanic. And I'm going to go to a Christian doctor's office. And I'm going to take my mail to the Christian mailman. And that really, isolating themselves. And Paul's saying, what? That is not what I was talking about. Those aren't the immoral people I said to disassociate with. So he has to correct their thinking. That's what he's doing here. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. True, I did say that, but you misunderstood me. Verse 10. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. I wasn't telling you to boycott every unbeliever you meet in your midst. Or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters. For if, I, if you did that, you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to leave the world because unbelievers are everywhere. And everything you possess and do by way of practice every day in one way or another is associated with another believer, an, an unbeliever. You can't escape the influence of unbelievers in your life. It's impossible. But actually, and he, he continues with the correction, here's what I meant. But actually, oh, so... Let me remind you of point one from last week was the prohibition. Don't boycott unbelievers. Don't boycott unbelievers. Don't go um, in front of Safeway with a sign that condemns every unbeliever at Safeway and its management to hell because they don't believe the gospel. That is not what we should do as Christians. Safeway is not a Christian organization. Uh, verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idol. And see, and it's not just immorality. A covetous person who professes to be a Christian doesn't repent or an idolatrous uh, professing Christian who doesn't repent or a reviler. That's, they got a mouth. They've got a forked tongue. They gossip and they don't stop. That'll destroy church, gossip. It's unacceptable. Or a drunkard. Or a swindler. People uh, trying to get money illegitimately from other people in the church. So those are the immoral people I'm talking about. So anybody that professes to be a Christian but continues unabated in some compromised sinful lifestyle and pattern that is destructive and clearly against the will of God and they don't repent and they don't turn from it and they don't admit it's wrong and and turn away from it, then you are to isolate that professing believer and disassociate from them and literally that's what, and boycott them. So point number two was the admonition, boycott unrepentant Christians. And so his point is, you've got this immoral guy in your church. Apparently he's been confronted. He's not repenting. You need to boycott that guy. Get him out of the church. Ostracize him. Isolate him. And God will use that to hopefully soften him and bring him to repentance, Lord willing. But in the meantime, you're protecting the church from his Sinful, cancerous behavior. So those were the first two points from last week. Uh, don't boycott unbelievers, but boycott unrepentant Christians. So let's go on to the, the second two points, number three and number four, which would be verses 12 and 13. Uh, verse 
let me pick up at verse 12. For what have I... Okay, Paul's saying, what do I as a Christian have to do with judging outsiders, unbelievers? In other words, what he's saying is, as a Christian, I have limited authority and jurisdiction over what I can tell an unbeliever to do and not to do, or primarily how they should live and how they shouldn't live. There are limits to what I can do. There's also limits to how I can enforce what I'm requiring of them. So our jurisdiction is limited in the world of unbelievers. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you, as Christians, you Corinthian Christians, do you not judge those who are within the church? That's a rhetorical question. The answer Paul requires is yes. So what he's saying, declarative statement. Corinthians, Christians, you need to realize you don't really have authority or jurisdiction over a lot of what goes on in the unsaved world in terms of requiring mandates on their behavior. But you do have authority to judge those inside the church if you're a Christian. So that blanket statement that we hear so often, judge ye not, lest ye be judged, judge ye not, that people like to use as an umbrella term and apply it to every area of life, that is illegitimate. It is narrow. It is applied in very specific circumstances. It doesn't apply to every area and every issue in life. That isn't how Jesus intended it. Paul is saying there are some areas you do judge, there are some areas you don't. And they were mixed up about it, and Paul's trying to clarify it. So that would be point number three. Oh, let me finish with verse 13. Now I get specific of a judgment that needs to be made regarding this man in the church who wouldn't repent, who was involved in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. By the way, this was incredibly scandalous. This was not the first time in the Bible this has happened. Remember in the Old Testament in Genesis, where Jacob, or who became Israel, he had 12 sons. And one of his oldest sons, Reuben, said went, Reuben at some point went up on his mother, on his father's bed. It's metaphorical, it's euphemistic speaking of an incestuous relationship that went on with one of Israel or Jacob's own sons. That was against God's law. It violated the sanctity of marriage. Years went by, and a day of reckoning finally came around at the end of Jacob's life, Israel's life, when he was pronouncing blessings and cursings on all of his sons. And Judah would be the the line of the Messiah, and Joseph uh, got his blessing, and then that son who compromised and had that incestuous relationship was cursed by Jacob or Israel and by God. So it was, a, it was a horrible compromise of sin. But uh, verse 13 says, but those who are outside, God judges. God judges unbelievers in a way that we just possibly can't. But as far as in the church, with unrepentant professing Christians, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He, that's about the fifth time he's repeated that. Deliver him to Satan, kick him out of the church, Remove the bad leaven. And here he says, remove the wicked man from yourself. This is kind of a quasi-quote from the book of Deuteronomy where that phrase is repeated five times. And we looked at it last week, starting in Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 22, and Deuteronomy 27, where uh, God is pointing out specific sins that he will not tolerate in the community of Israel's covenant people from uh, being a, giving a false testimony to being a rebellious child, to being a drunkard, to be involved in idolatry and being involved in immorality. It was to be judged if they were unrepentant that they were to be 
either stoned to death, burned with fire, put out of the community. And that phrase five times is used, remove the wicked man from you. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Isolate the sinner so God can continue with the discipline, but also protect uh, his holy people and his holy reputation. And so that's how this section ends, where Paul again reminds them, you need to remove that wicked man from your midst. Now, this seems harsh in our day and age to people who are not used to uh, biblical church discipline or even the discipline of God and his very character and nature that is all throughout the Bible. God is a God of wrath. God is a holy God. God is a consuming fire just as much as he's a God of love. He needs to preserve his purity. God can't tolerate any evil in his midst. So he must punish it. And he does all the way from Genesis chapter 2 when he created the first two people, Adam and Eve. And he said, Adam, here's what you're allowed to do. And God emphasized the goodness uh, that Adam was given, by the way, at the very beginning of creation before sin entered the world. And he created the whole world for Adam and Eve to enjoy and, and to manage on his behalf as his vice regents. But he did give them one prohibition. Don't eat from this tree over here. And if you do, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Now that is discipline. You want to call it church discipline? That's discipline from God. You will be chastened. You will be punished. The wages of sin is death. When we do church discipline in the church, we are acting like God. We're acting like God did with Adam and how God has acted all throughout uh, human history. Sin needs to be dealt with and in the appropriate manner for His glory. So let me just review. Uh, the prohibition, don't boycott unbelievers. Uh, two, boycott unrepentant Christians. Three, the jurisdiction that we do have to judge. The church has defined boundaries of jurisdiction, and those boundaries we glean from Scripture, the Bible. Not from church history, not from leaders in the church, not from a decree from any man. The boundaries are given in Scripture and Scripture alone. We have to be biblically driven in determining those boundaries. And sometimes it's, it's very difficult to figure out where the boundaries are in terms of implementing discipline. And I asked you last week, I told you I would like to dedicate some time to questions and answers on church discipline and maybe relevant matters to this passage if we wanted to address some real-life situations. Uh, and then this week I invited people to email me. I got some emails on very specific issues that I want to answer and address from a biblical point of view. Some of the scenarios I was given were very, 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 very difficult. No, I'll say that again. All the uh, questions I were asked were very, 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 very difficult and complicated. And I'm thinking, wow, there is no pat, short, one-sentence biblical answer to this problem. Yikes. Maybe I'll just skip that one and we'll run out of time. If I just keep preaching. i got 20 minutes to go. How am I going to do this? But anyway, um, which just reminded me that life is complicated. Life is dynamic. Life is with relationships with people and uh, so we'll do the best we can, but uh, I believe there are biblical answers to every scenario. Even if we don't know what it is at the moment, God has an answer. It's in his word. That's why we need to seek his counsel, his wisdom through prayer, uh, the wisdom and counsel of other godly people, maybe people who've been through that experience before and understand it now in hindsight from a biblical point of view, and we can glean from them. So we'll do the best that we can on some of these questions that I received uh, before today, and then if we have time, we'll take some. We'll maybe field some out there if you have those to share. But before we do that, let's go on to point number four. Because we do have to add some balance to these three points that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 5. Because Paul is not being comprehensive in 1 Corinthians 5. So some of you may walk out thinking, okay, we boycott unbelievers. Um, 
No, we don't boycott unbelievers. But we do boycott unrepentant Christians. And then maybe you leave this place thinking, uh, so I don't ever boycott anything an unbeliever ever does. And I just tolerate everything they do. And I just remain passive as I interact with the unbelieving world, no matter how gross and immoral and sinful they are. No. That is not what Paul is saying. That's That's not what I'm saying. So point four is kind of the balance to that. We do have jurisdiction, authority, and responsibility towards the unbelieving, sinful, fallen world. Here it is. Here's the main answer. Um, There are many corollaries to it. And that's the Great Commission. Every Christian is called to be a part of and fulfill the Great Commission. And that is Jesus commanded every Christian to infiltrate, not isolate, infiltrate the unbelieving world. Getting to know unbelievers in every corner and vestige of society starting with your next-door neighbor and anybody that's an unbeliever in your family and the extended family. And we are called to have an influence for Christ in all of those relationships wherever we go. So uh, that's the Great Commission. Every Christian is responsible to be a part of that Great Commission, infiltrating, not isolating, infiltrating the unsaved world. Have you ever heard uh, an unbeliever say, or uh, a naive Christian say, well, they're not saved, we can't preach to them? I hear that all the time. Well, they're not saved. We can't preach to them. Or they're not saved, so I'm not going to preach to them. I'm thinking, no, actually, that's what we're supposed to do. That is exactly what we're supposed to do to unbelievers. Well, they're not going to listen. They don't believe the Bible, so what good is that? No, No, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. So that's point number four, the Great Commission. Part of infiltrating the world, it's not just going and living godly before them without saying anything. You're... Actions need to be interpreted with divine wisdom that comes from Scripture, that comes only through preaching. Because you can go into a society and do good deeds. And you could go and just close your mouth, you say nothing, and all you do, you just minister, and you feed the orphans. And then the Mormon church can go into the same city, they don't have to say anything, and they can feed probably more orphans than we can. And then Oprah... She'll go into many cities and feed the orphans way more than we can. And nobody says anything. And the unbelieving world is looking on saying, wow, look at all these good deeds that all these people are doing. And if you don't say anything, if you don't preach, if it doesn't come with biblical authority, it can't be interpreted. So, yeah, you can do good works. We're called to do good works, but never without the message of the gospel being a part of that package of our ministry. That's the difference. Well, I'm just going to be a witness through living. I'm not going to say anything. No, you won't be a witness for Jesus. You will be a witness for the unnamed creator who created every human being in his image. You won't be a a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing that can save a lost soul. So we're not just called to do humanitarian deeds. It's got to be with the gospel. As a matter of fact, the gospel is the main message. It's the main good that we can do. They may go hungry again. The gospel they can keep with them forever. So the Great Commission. So my point is we need to preach to, that's the first word I put was preach. Open your mouth and proclaim. Preach means to proclaim. It's, it's not a dialogue. It is not a conversation. It's not a discussion. It's not point-counterpoint. Preaching is proclamation. 
It is giving an edict. It is giving a decree. It is a one-way message. It is a herald. It is authoritative. It is universal. It is binding. It is, on, it is binding on everyone who hears. And Mark chapter 1 says Jesus came preaching and teaching. That was the essence of his ministry. That's how Mark chooses to summarize Jesus' ministry. Jesus came preaching and teaching. He, he could have said, well, Jesus also did miracles and he fed people and he did this and he uh, helped. He didn't say that. Because the most important element to Jesus' ministry was preaching and teaching. And it was all about who he was and what the need of lost humanity was, that they were lost without Christ. So Christians need to do the same thing. As we go and infiltrate the world, we need to preach to, witness to, that means verbally, as we talk to unbelievers and answering their questions, as we give them the gospel, biblical truth that comes only from Scripture, and they may have questions. Uh, we also pray for them. We pray for salvation as we give the Word of God and we tell them uh, you were born a sinner because that's what Scripture says. You were born separated from your Creator because that's what Scripture says. That is the bad news. Uh, God is holy. He hates sin. He must punish sin. And if you don't turn from your sin, you will end up going to an eternal hell where you would suffer justly because God is a holy God. That is the bad news. But there's even greater news and that God is also a loving God and He loves His creation and so He sent himself down into this world in the form of Jesus Christ, the God-man in a body. And Jesus came literally to die as a substitute for sinners, to be punished by the Father for their sin when He died on the cross. So that as He's dying on the cross, God the Father is pouring all of His wrath and hatred towards sin on Jesus, who didn't deserve to die. And while Jesus hung on the cross, He absorbed the wrath and the fury of a holy God and then he was buried, and then he rose himself again from the dead, and then he ascended on high, and Jesus reigns as the Savior of the world today. And anybody, any sinner that believes that Jesus died as their substitute and admits that they are a sinner and asks Jesus to save their soul, and they understand that and they believe it, then God will instantaneously save that person for all eternity. And you'll be transferred from the domain of darkness and Satan into the kingdom of light with his beloved Son. And you can be saved. So that's the message that needs to be communicated. That is the gospel. That's what we need to tell unbelievers. That's witnessing. And when we do give that message, we pray for them. We pray for their salvation. We pray that the Holy Spirit would soften their heart. We pray that the Holy Spirit would remove blindness that comes from their own sin. Sin blinds. Sin is deceitful. We need to pray to the Holy Spirit that God would remove the blinders from Satan because that's what Scripture says. 2 Corinthians 4 says that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded every unbeliever so they can't in and of themselves uh, even understand the gospel at a spiritual level. They understand it at a human level in terms of the words and they usually think it's preposterous and foolishness. Me, I'm not a sinner. I haven't murdered anybody lately. I don't need to be saved. So they think our message is foolishness and it, they make a mockery of it. And it takes the Holy Spirit of God and a supernatural work to remove that satanic blindness so that they can see the God. Like uh, Lydia heard the gospel from Paul and that beautiful phrase in Acts 16. It says, the Lord opened her heart. And as a result, she was, allowed, she was able to believe. So that's what I mean by pray for. Do you think of anybody you know that is not saved? Are you praying regularly for their salvation? Are you praying for the Word of God that never returns? Well, that's the beautiful thing in a witnessing encounter. You go in, you witness... You talk with this person. You tell them what you believe, that Scripture says they were, we were all born separated 
because of sin. We were all born enemies of God. We all need the salvation that it only comes through Jesus Christ and Christ died on the cross for sinners. And if we just trust in him and repent of our sin and believe in who he is, his death and resurrection and cry out to him, he will save us instantaneously. And you share that with somebody and maybe they just they laugh at it. They say, oh, that's ridiculous. Or, oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe we could talk later. Or they blow you off. You ever had a witnessing opportunity or encounter where you just felt like, mm, that didn't go so well, I just got blown off? Oh, that was worthless. Well, that was a waste of time. They didn't get saved. No, that was not a waste of time. If you gave them biblical truth, if you communicated the truth of Scripture, it wasn't a waste of time at all because the Word of God is living and active. It has pierced into their soul, into their conscience, even though we can't see it, and actually it remains with them. So long after you are gone, feeling like a failure because they didn't pray with you to receive Jesus into their heart. The Word of God is still doing its work. It's percolating in their soul. And you know how long it's going to be with them? Until they die. God's Word never returns void. So it's either going to, at some point, it's going to trigger and soften them and bring them to Christ. Or if they continue to harden their heart, it will just continue to convict them and convict them and convict them all the more. That's what the Word of God does in the Gospel and Scripture. It's, it's awesome. So, Actually, every witnessing encounter that you truly have where there's an exchange of Scripture is always successful. If you were able to just spill over and leak out some biblical truth and they were actually paying attention, boom, God will use that in the unbeliever. And that's why we just got to keep praying, keep praying, keep praying for them. Uh, and also we need to be an example to, and the blank there is unbelievers. So preach to unbelievers, witness to unbelievers, pray for unbelievers, be an example of godliness and Christ-likeness to unbelievers. When you witness to them, you do it with gentleness. Gentleness. That doesn't mean compromise truth. That doesn't mean you can't speak bluntly. You do it with gentleness. Recognize they're, they're a human being made in the image of God just as much as I am. I'm just as undeserving of the salvation that I enjoy as they are. Gentleness and reverence. And then we call them to repentance. It's our job to call every sinner to repentance. Some Christians think, you, well, you can't really tell an unbeliever anything anyway. It's not true. Just There's a zillion examples I could give. Just go Acts 17. I'll just give that one. This is a good one because it's parallel. Here's the Apostle Paul going into Athens, which was very similar to Corinth. Very secular, immoral, idolatrous, humanistic, non-Jewish, avoid of historical biblical revelation, polytheism, agnosticism. These were all similar thought, uh, rhetoric, reigns supreme, Acts chapter 17. So it's parallel to what Paul had to deal with in Corinth. And so some people would say, Christians would say, well, when you go to pagans or Gentiles or Greeks, for people who don't believe the Bible, you've got to change your message. And you've got to accommodate them. And you've got to accommodate their worldview. And you've got to accommodate their cult. No, you don't. Because here's Paul doing it in Acts 17. He is preaching to total pagans. As he goes into Athens, he, 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 is, he gets provoked in his spirit. Oh, that's uh, 20. Actually, just start at verse um, 16. First he goes in the synagogue, tries to preach to people there, and then, boy, that didn't get a warm reception. So then he just starts going out on the streets with all these pagans. And Paul's waiting for his buddies, Timothy, and a couple partners. While he's waiting, verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So Athens was just full of idolatry. 
And it actually made him angry. Verse 17. So, and then he began reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day um, with those who happen to be present. So he's also talking to Gentiles out on the street. Verse 18. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These were Greek philosophers. He was conversing with them. And he's, what he's doing, what is he conversing? He's preaching the gospel. He's giving scripture. That's what he's doing. He's not talking philosophy. He's not talking Plato and Socrates. He is talking Bible. Jesus, death, resurrection, Old Testament. That's what he's talking. We know from the context. And so these very educated Greeks, Epicureans, and Stoics are listening to Paul saying, man, this guy, we've never heard a guy like this before. He's saying stuff we've never heard of before. This guy's kind of weird. He's conversing with them, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? That's what they called him. He's full of hot air. He's an idle babbler. Others were saying, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. There it is. That's the gospel. These are total pagans. They've never heard biblical truth in their life from Scripture. Many of them. He goes right to the chase. Uh, he doesn't do pre-evangelism. He does evangelism. Here is the gospel. Here is Jesus. Here is what sin is about. Verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and saying, May we know what this new teaching is, what you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. This is crazy stuff. It's just the gospel. Then he went into Genesis and talked about creation and how we got here and how he made one all of humanity from one man who we know is Adam. And that God's going to judge everybody. Verse, here it is, verse 30. He gives his gospel presentation. And then in verse 30 he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance throughout history, God is now. Here it is, present tense. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. There it is. Our jurisdiction is over everybody on planet Earth regarding giving them the gospel and calling them to repentance. Unbelievers are not exempt. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that is Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer and mock. So he got different responses. So that's our call uh, as believers to the unbelieving world. It's not uh, legislating Christian morality and the Christian worldview on them. It is being witnesses and lights for Christ, beginning with the gospel and being a godly influence wherever we go. Uh, but there, there are times... Oh, one, I'll add a point number five. As Christians, we do need to boycott wicked behavior or unrighteousness wherever we find it. So as we go out into the world and say you've got an unsafe friend says, hey, come over to my house and you know there's going to be some uh, drunken orgy there, you don't go as a Christian. That is clear from Scripture. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So there are things in the world we need to boycott. And there are things in the world we need to speak up against and preach against. As prophets did in the Old Testament, we're also called to a prophetic ministry to address the culture because it's not just the world that belongs to the unbeliever. This world also belongs to us as Christians. We are citizens of this world too. We're stewards of it. We have some rights and there are places where we need to speak up and proclaim and be prophets for God that goes beyond the gospel and things that are relevant to every human being. For example, I think we have the right as Christians, according to Scripture, to speak out to the culture against abortion because it affects every human being, the right to life that comes from God, the Creator. Another one is the sanctity of marriage, the definition of marriage. God invented marriage. We need to protect his definition of marriage according to Scripture and speak out, we are being confronted with both in this culture today in which we live. We don't just sit idly,
passively by with our mouths shut. That's cowardice, and that's not representing God in His glory, the way He's called the church to be. We are called to be salt and light. And one thing that salt and light do at times, they expose darkness. They expose it, and they preserve holiness. So there's a balance there. And it's usually case by case when you're trying to figure out, well, how do I apply this to my own life? That's where you need God's wisdom and ongoing prayer. So uh, with that, let me go ahead and throw out some of these questions, and then maybe you've got questions. Uh, And then you can just kind of shout it out from where you are. Turn your question, by the way, into a generic question so that we know it's not you. And and then that way, if you make it kind of a universal question, it can apply to anybody if they're in the same boat. So try to depersonalize it if you can. I've got some examples I'll do, but first of all, and then you just kind of shout it out from your seat there, and then I'll answer it. I'll repeat the question and try to answer it as best I can. We've got a few minutes, but does anybody have a question, by the way, that you would like uh, me to address? Oh, right there. Jesse, go ahead. Excellent question. How do uh, we discipline Christians in other congregations, especially if that church doesn't believe in or practice church discipline? That's actually one I have written on the card. I'll get back to it. Anybody else have a question? I just want to make sure we feel all those that, uh, those, any others. Okay, Jesse, the only brave guy here today. That's awesome. Jesse, right on. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, well, let me go with these ones. And I'm going to start with the one that Jesse had because that's one that was submitted to me earlier, too. Uh, the question was Do we as Christians. Uh, discipline members only? Do we discipline members only? For example, GBF, this church, in our bylaws, it says we believe in church discipline and we give the passages. Matthew 18, uh, Titus 3, 1 Corinthians 5, and we follow that model. And if you become a member, you need to willingly subject yourself to church discipline. It's an agreement. So if you become a member of GBF, you agree that church discipline needs to be done and you agree that it needs to go on in your local church and you agree that you will support it and be a part of it. And that's what all the members theoretically agree to. Um, And in Matthew 18, there's like four steps to church discipline. Church discipline step one is one-on-one. Somebody sins against me, I go confront the brother or sister in private and talk about that sin, point the sin out. Hopefully they repent. If they repent, forgiven, forgotten, nobody needs to know about it. If they don't repent, and you can go several times, by the way. It's not just one time. They don't repent. Step two, go get one or two other people. The three of you go back, confront the sin. If they repent then, totally forgiven, dropped, never talk about it again. If they don't repent, they don't hear you, you go back, you tell it to the church. I would start with the elders of the church. And then the elders communicate it to the members of the church. And then the church confronts the sinner. Step three. If the sinner then repents, then totally forgiven, totally forgotten, restored to the body. That's 2 Corinthians. If they don't even listen to the church, then you go to step four, which basically is being isolated and removed or ostracized from the congregation, put out. You're not a member anymore. As a matter of fact, we don't even consider you a Christian. You're acting like an unbeliever, and so that's how we're going to treat you, and we're going to pray for your salvation. And if you repent and get saved, We'll have a homecoming feast in your honor at the fellowship meal. And we'll slaughter a cow and embrace you and love you. So that's, in a nutshell, the discipline process of Matthew 18. That's what we believe. 
the problem is uh, it's probably the exception that a church believes in, supports, and does church discipline in a local church. Most churches that I am aware of don't do church discipline. Or at least they don't do it in a biblical model. They ignore sin. They redefine it. They, I mean, just I've been a part of those churches. And I told you last week, like John MacArthur would be one example that he's been at Grace Church for 40 years or whatever. And he said in the 70s, there, he, he couldn't even think of a church that practiced church discipline. It was just something most churches didn't do. And so do we just discipline Christians that are in our church? I would say no. So here's what I'd say. Anybody who professes to be a Christian should be subject to church discipline, starting with Matthew 18, step 1. You have the right to confront any Christian uh, who has sinned against you or you're an eyewitness of that sin, whether they go to your church or not. If, they're, if they professed Christ, then you can just go to them in private, all prayed up, point out the sin and seeking their repentance and restoration. doesn't matter who, what church they go to. doesn't even matter if they say, well, I don't believe in church discipline. Oh, I thought you said you're a Christian. Don't you believe in the Bible? Here's Matthew 18. Just trying to get, I want to get it right with you. And then, so I think you can apply step one to anybody regardless of what church they go to. And then that doesn't work. I think you can apply step two to anybody regardless of what church they go to. Because all you do is just get one or two of your friends and who can become witnesses or whatever, or maybe they even know this person who's in sin, but they don't go to your church. Then the two or three of you, you go to them and you confront them with the sin and you show them from Scripture. It has to be based on Scripture. Not your opinion, not a preference, not an experience, not your ignorance. It has to be show them from Scripture where they have violated eyewitness. This is the only way you could have a conviction in the Old Testament under Deuteronomy law. It would be the testimony from Scripture based on two or three witnesses. So... Uh, the problem is, is you have to, if they say no, and then you go, to, you try to go to step three. Tell it to the church. Say they go to another church. This has happened here at GBF, where we had somebody here, maybe who was a regular attender, and they were here a lot, a long period of time. And then maybe they got confronted with sin, and then it, up to step two or three, they're actually going to other churches, or maybe they're even a member at another church, and they're just going to two or three churches at the same time, and then. You know, I've gone to other churches and other pastors say, well, I wanted you to know this person is attending your church. Here's their name. Here's their history. We took them through Matthew 18, step one and two. We're trying to do three. Can you help us out and cooperate? I've had pastors say, absolutely, I will help you. And I've had pastors help me do that and get them in a corner of accountability. And I've also had uh, pastors click. They want nothing to do with it. Oh, this person's coming. Oh, another giver. Praise the Lord. Another giving unit. They don't want to do church this for whatever reason. So those are real life scenarios. And so kind of church, but then I guess you're just kind of, oh, well, we've done church discipline at this church. I've done discipline at other churches where uh, you get to step three or even step two and the, the sinner who's a member of your church flees and they don't want to be subjected to church discipline and they just go to another church or maybe they just don't go to church at all. They just bail. So they're not honoring the covenant they made when they joined this church. That you agreed with the discipline process you will submit to it. You will honor it. You will even be a part of it in upholding the church discipline process at the church. So do you have to be a member of a church to be disciplined? No. It's just going to get difficult to implement it when you get to step three and step four if they are not members of your church or if they're not a member of another church or if that church just doesn't believe in church membership. And there's a lot of churches out there uh, like that. Uh, here's a couple of footnotes I made on on this issue of church discipline in churches, um, ways you or a Christian can undermine the church discipline process in your local church. 
ways that a, a Christian can sabotage the discipline process in the local church. And I've seen every one of these happen, either here or at other churches. Um, yeah, if you're not a member of a church, that creates a problem in step three. If the one being disciplined flees and they run from the church, I've seen that happen a lot. Uh, or if they flee to another church uh, and the other church does not cooperate, I've seen that happen. If the church leaders are cowards in the local church and don't want to implement it at step three, I've seen that happen a lot. Want to be people pleasers? Um, or the way you can sabotage the church discipline process in your own local church is if the members are cowards, kind of like the Corinthians were. So here we got 140 members at GBF and you know signed on the dotted line of the membership covenant, and one of those is I support church discipline. And then we actually get to step three, and then we let our members know, here is their name, here's their sin, they're unrepentant, and we all need to act as in unison, unified as one body, and discipline that person. That's what you agreed to do. It's what Scripture says needs to be done. Keep in mind, up to step three, only four people at most should even know that the discipline process is happening. So when you get to step three, all of a sudden you go from just four people knowing to an entire audience, and they don't have the history. They don't know what went on. Uh, doesn't matter. Jesus said, tell the church, and the church needs to support it. Not question it or not assume uh, wrong things were done. You can ask questions. But the worst thing you can do is start having wrong loyalties. Say you're in a church and you get to step three and it's uh, the members are notified that church discipline is being done on such and such a person and you hear about it for the first time and, oh, that's one of your good friends. Do I Am I going to show loyalty to my good friend who is being disciplined by the church or am I going to support the elders and the rest of the church who's gone through this process slowly and prayerfully and according to Scripture? Whose side am I going to take? Sadly, I've seen loyalties go to the unrepentant sinner, and I've seen Christians do that without any knowledge whatsoever. It was just strictly based on a relationship or wrong assumptions, and that undermines everything. So the body, the members, have to speak with one voice uh, at step three and step four. Uh, very important. Otherwise, the process is circumvented. Um, so that addresses all my uh, corollary points I had on church discipline. Uh, another question, should we... Actually, i got a couple on this same question. Should I go to uh, my friend's wedding and they're gay and they're, it's going to be a gay wedding? Um, to me, biblically, the answer is very simple. Doing it, that's a different story. That's not always simple because of family and relationships and whatever. And the fear you might have, oh, what are they going to think of me? Uh, should I go to my family or a friend's wedding and it's going to be a gay wedding? Well, I, no, because it's not a wedding. I don't know what they're doing. If it's a guy and a guy and a girl, you're not. it's not a wedding because God's already defined what a wedding is. It's one man, one woman, Genesis 2. That hasn't changed. Jesus reiterated it. Paul reiterated it. It's reiterated again in the book of Revelation and in Daniel that marriage will always be marriage defined by God till the end of the age. So... You don't go and endorse something that Leviticus 17 and Romans 1 says is an abomination and it's a counterfeit. If by your own presence, you're endorsing it. Uh, I think the most important thing in this, like I said, easier said than done. Because it could be based, maybe you've got an unbelieving friend and they happen to be homosexual or lesbian. And you want to maintain a friendship with them? 
because you want to be an example. Uh, you want to give them the gospel. Uh, so you do want to have a relationship, which Paul said, don't boycott categorically unbelievers in every area of life. But you have to draw your biblical boundaries. That's what's difficult. So you've got to decide. From a Christian point of view, here's, here's one of the overarching principles that very few people ever think about in this scenario. Say you have, okay, an entire Christian group of people or a Christian family. One or two of them is invited to a gay or homosexual wedding. That Christian says, well, I'm working on a relationship with this person because they're not saved, so I'm going to go to the wedding. I don't believe it's right. I'm not going to endorse it. I'm not in the wedding. And I don't consider them married even though I'm going to the ceremony, so I'm going to go. And they just made up their mind, they're going to go. Then other family members who are Christian are absolutely opposed. That this is an abomination, and by virtue of going, you're endorsing this uh, counterfeit of marriage. I don't want to go. The one thing that the Christian who's going absolutely cannot do, we're going to see this later on in Corinthians, and it's also in the book of Romans, a Christian should not force another Christian to do something that violates their conscience. You have to respect the decision of the other Christian who says, you know what, that is an offense to my conscience. I can't sin against my conscience. I just can't do it. Then that needs to be honored. So maybe that's the compromise. So again, that's a very difficult situation. That's come up three, four times. I got a couple of those questions this week that are actually going on in our church with friends we know and with families we know. And more and more that's becoming an issue because of our culture and the message that it preaches that uh, gay and lesbian now polytheistic marriages. Now we've got two TV shows of a man with multiple wives. And this is educating our society basically that anything goes, it's all okay. So we've got to maintain clear biblical distinctions. This isn't so much about the emphasis shouldn't be on uh, that homosexuality is an abomination as much as the sanctity of what a true marriage is. That's really where the, the emphasis needs to be. That God is the one that defined marriage. It pictures the relationship of Christ and His church. And I don't care if it's incest, adultery, uh, homosexuality, poly, uh, not polytheism, but uh, polygamy, thank you. Um, it all distorts this beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to be. Christ married to his church. That is really the most important issue. So uh, I know that's a hot potato and a very difficult one that some of you are actually praying through and grappling through. Um, and then one more. This is a common one I've had. Um, it wasn't asked this week, but it's been asked to me a few times since I've been here in the last seven and a half years. Should I go to, I've got either a relative or a neighbor or friends who are Mormons or Roman Catholic. Fill in the blank of your the religion. And they're having an official ceremony of dedication, whether it's a baptism or whatever, at their church. And they've invited me. Should I go? So, should I go to, I've got neighbors who are Mormons. They've invited me to a baptism of one of their, their eight-year-old kid at church on Sunday. Should I go? And my first response is always, well, what do you think? Because I'm trying to see what their conscience. I don't want to give counsel against their conscience. Well, what do you think? And 100% of the time it's been, well, I'm, I'm uneasy and uncomfortable doing it. <laughs> Take note of that. And let's not forget that. And then I ask other follow-up questions. And Well, why would you even consider going that if your first inclination is not to go and you're uncomfortable with it? Well, because I've got a friendship and I'm trying to witness to them. And, well, that's a good thing, but that's secondary. You, you can't violate your conscience. And let's think about the biblical principles involved here. Okay? Your main 
you're questioning yourself because your main concern is, am I going to end my friendship with them because I'm not going to this event to support it? Uh, well, that's not true. If you can ha- be a friend to somebody and witness to them and socialize with them, but it doesn't have to be 100% all the time on their terms with everything they dictate. I mean, there's probably other social events you can go to with them, whether it's going to the park and your kids play together or some non-religious environment that isn't endorsing their false system of belief as though you are passively saying it's okay. Because you don't want to do that. You will mislead them. That is not good. But you can cultivate a wonderful and beautiful friendship with them and maintain a solid testimony without taking that religious compromise. And if you need legitimate excuses to do it, you can say, well, you know what? Our family, we go to our own church and we worship on Sunday and there's a conflict there and that's really important to us. So maybe there's something else we can do. Maybe you give them suggestions or recommendations of other things that won't interfere in terms of your faith. So there is a way to go through it. But again, it's that principle, don't violate or sin against your conscience. Paul's going to talk about that later in Corinthians. So I had several of those come up in the last few years. Um, And actually, those were the main ones that were thrown my way and submitted. So with that, unless there's anybody else that's got a secondary question to some of the stuff we've said, we will go ahead and pray. We will ask God for ongoing wisdom, especially in your family relationships. That's where this is, gets the stickiest and it's hard to work out. And we need God's supernatural wisdom uh, day by day in all of our decision making. So let's go ahead and pray to him before we go to lunch. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to get together with the saints, to be encouraged, uh, to worship together through song, to pray to you, uh, to study your word together. God, it is amazing that uh, 1 Corinthians is 2,000 years old and yet is so relevant to us, our lives, and our culture today. That's just proof that the Bible is what you said it is. It is the living Word of God. It is living and active. Um, So we thank you for that wonderful treasure. God, give us wisdom as we leave this place of where to properly create the boundaries because we can't do it without your help with the counsel of other godly people with the leading of the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, we don't want to be pharisaical, judgmental legalists, which squelches your grace. And on the other hand, we don't want to be libertarians endorsing gross sin that offends your holiness. And we walk between those two extremes, but only by your leading. So help us to do that in a way that pleases you and accomplishes uh, the furtherance of the kingdom of God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.